Ecclesiastes chapter 12, starting in verse number 1. I want to speak to you this morning on the topic, what is your life? What is your life? Verse 1, remember now your creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look through the windows grow dim, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low, also they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way, when the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails, for man goes to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets. Remember your creator. Before the silver cord is loosed. Or the golden bowl is broken. Or the pitcher shattered at the fountain. Or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was. And the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Keep your finger there. Turn over now to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and verse number 13, James 4, 13. (coughs) Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. Spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Father God, thank you so much for these passages this morning. I pray that you would speak to our hearts now. I pray, Lord God, that all distraction would be removed. I pray, Father, that you would fill me with your spirit. And I pray that we would learn something today from the word that is helpful. Uh, Lord, there may be some here today who are not certain of their their salvation. And so I pray that somewhere in this this discussion today, the Holy Spirit will get hold of their heart. Help them to know how much Jesus loves them. Help them to know, Lord God, that... By believing on him, they can be saved. I I pray that comes out in this somewhere. Uh, Holy Spirit, don't let anybody walk out of this place not knowing you, not knowing Christ. Uh, I pray that. And then I pray also, Lord, for all of us who are thinking about this new year, uh, already beginning to make plans, already beginning to think about what's going to happen in 2013. And Lord God, I pray this would be helpful to us this morning as we go through that process. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's start with a little survey this morning. Would you like a little survey this morning? Uh, I would, whether you would or not. We're going to start with a little survey. I wonder how many of you this morning would raise your hands and say that you have made one or more resolutions at the start of last year. Last year, you made one or more resolutions. How many of you? Wow, not as many as I thought. Are the rest of you just chicken? Because you know where we're going to go with this, don't you? You're not going to to admit that you've made them. Because the next question is, how many of you kept and are still keeping all of your resolutions today at the end of the year? I find that hard to believe. Did you really? 
I'm impressed. I'm impressed. You're an anachronism. Okay, here's the third question. How many are starting off 2013 with at least one New Year's resolution? Uh-huh. We're such optimists. We all need to go talk to Lord, find her secret. Well, on December 13, 2012, the University of Scranton, in their Journal of Clinical Psychology, published the top ten New Year's resolutions for this coming year. Now, I don't know how they accumulated this list. They must have done a survey or something, but it just came out. These are the top ten New Year's resolutions. You can probably guess what they are. Now, there's not, no rocket science here, but I'm going to read them anyway. Number one, lose weight. Number two, get organized. Number three, spend less and save more. That's, that's, that's a good one there. Number four, enjoy life to the fullest. Number five, stay fit and healthy. Number six, learn something exciting. Number seven, quit smoking. Number eight, help others in their dreams. Number nine, fall in love. And number ten, spend more time with family. No surprises there, right? We would expect that kind of a list. We would expect that when we were just thinking through uh, conversations we've had with folks. That's, that's not unusual. Uh, neither were there any surprises in the statistics that they included along with this, the horrifying statistics about you know, how well we really do at this sort of thing. Uh, they, they said, for example, that the percent of Americans who usually make New Year's resolutions is 45%. The percent of Americans who infrequently make New Year's resolutions is 17 So, in other words, you, talk, you put those two together, and the percent of Americans who sometimes do participate in this little activity is over 60% of us. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. The percent of Americans who absolutely never make a New Year's resolution, 38%. So the majority of us do. But then here's the percent of people who are successful in achieving their resolutions. What do you think that number is? You're very close, Bob. Very close. Not less than one. Eight percent. Eight percent of people were successful in achieving their resolutions. Some people do report infrequent success. You know, they, they hit and miss at it a little bit. That was about half of people reported that. But 24 percent. Uh, reported that they never succeed and they fail on their resolution every single year. Even if they have the same resolution every year, 24%, one-fourth of the people in America say they fail at keeping it. Well, a couple of things, as I read that, I, a couple of things came out there just jumped out at me. Obviously, one of them is Americans make a lot of resolutions this time of year, but we're pretty stinking lousy at it, wouldn't you say? We're very, very good at making them. We're very abysmal at keeping them. <laughs> And so I wondered, can the Bible help us with this? Can the Bible help us with this matter of resolving, this matter of making resolutions for the new year? And I think it can. Our text this morning is the passage I read in James. We'll get back to Ecclesiastes in a moment. But the text this morning that I want to concentrate on is James chapter 4. And I believe James speaks directly to this issue in that passage. I think he talks to us there about what, what, what constitutes a foolish resolution. And I think he talks to us there about what constitutes a wise resolution. I think he gives us some guidance there. And so let's look at those two things this morning. First of all, foolish New Year's resolutions. Look again at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Doesn't that sound like everybody's New Year's resolutions? 
Is there a verse in the Bible that you can find that gives a clear example of what we tend to do when we make resolutions? Think what he's saying there. In the new year, I will control how and where I live. Didn't he say that there? In the new year, I will control my time. In the new year, I will control my possessions. In the new year, I will control my income. Sounds like a lot of our New Year's resolutions. And the key problem I would suggest that jumps out of that verse is in that thought, I will control. It doesn't say that there, but that's what he's thinking. I will control. He's saying he's going to exert control on all these things. As human beings, isn't that what we want to do? We like to believe, don't we, that we are in control. We think, for example, in America, that if we just elect the right person into public office, it is going to give us peace and prosperity and a wonderful life all down through history. We think that we can have some sort of control over our lives and our futures that way. We think that by training and preparation for a career, that we're controlling our potential for future wealth. We think that by wisdom and prudence, our wisdom and prudence, we can exert control and influence over our own lifestyles. We think that by our own diligence and hard work, we can gather and prepare for a life of ease at retirement. We think we can control these things. We think we can control. There's another fellow like that in the Bible. He's mentioned in Luke chapter 12 and verse number 16. Let me read you the story. Jesus spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have been which you have provided. He thought he could control. He thought he was in control. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I don't want anybody to take this the wrong way. I don't think there's anything wrong with planning. Not, not at all. And I don't think there's anything wrong with prudence or saving or planning for the future. None of that. I think making wise choices and being a good citizen and exercising and losing weight and quitting smoking and getting out of debt and all those, that's all good stuff. So don't walk out of here today and say that the pastor said we ought not to do that stuff because that's not what I'm trying to say. I think the problem is not in the level of planning. The problem is in that thought contained in that word, control. I am in control. I will do this. I am the one in control. When we think we are in control, we err. And when we forget that God is the one who is in control, we err. And isn't that what verse 14 makes clear? Notice what he says. Start reading again in verse 13 so we get the whole thought. But he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. I see two things in that verse that scream to me the fact that things are beyond my control. I am not the one Two things. Did you see them there? One is the phrase, you do not know. And the other is the phrase, your life is a vapor. Think about those two thoughts. You do not know. You know, you don't have to go very far reading uh, in your Bibles. And I hope you do read in your Bibles. You don't have to go very far before you come across examples of people who thought they had it all figured out, who thought they were perfectly in control, who thought they had the future all planned out only to find the rug plug pulled right out from under them. They were not in control. They did not know. For example, 
Herod the Great. Herod, great king. Uh, one minute being worshipped as a god by his subjects. At the very top of his whatever. And the very next minute, God smites him with a disease and he dies. He thought he knew about tomorrow, but he did not know. Belteshazzar, one of my favorite examples of this. Belteshazzar in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. Belteshazzar, king of Babylon. Belteshazzar who calls all of his minions together and has this great feast. And they're drinking and feasting and having a wonderful time. He thinks he's at the pinnacle of his career. And all of a sudden he looks over and he sees the fingers of a man's hand writing on the wall. Of course, we believe it was God's hand writing on the wall. Mine, mine, tico, you farson, it said. And it basically said, your time's up. Your kingdom is over. It's going to somebody else. And he thought he had it all together. He thought he knew what was tomorrow, but he didn't know. His kingdom was removed from him. Job was at the top of his game. Job had a wonderful family. He had great wealth. He had power. He had prestige in his community. He would have been one of the top citizens of his day. That was one day. And then the very next day, he had lost it all. Family, friends, wealth, health, gone. He thought he knew, but he did not. No. Joseph, daddy's favorite, one day. A slave, the next. Then his master's favorite, the next day. And then in prison, the next. And then the prison keeper's favorite, the next day. And then soon elevated to the second position in the land. I, I, when I think about Joseph, I think, what a life that must have been. I mean, one day up here, one day down here. One day up here, one day down here. He did not know what the next day was going to be. And neither do we. Consider how Solomon put it in one of his most oft-quoted Proverbs. He said in Proverbs chapter 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Did you catch what he said? Lean not on your own understanding. Why? Because you do not know. You do not know. Uh, do not be wise in your own eyes. Why? Because you do not know. Jesus said one time, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble, Matthew chapter 6. There's no sense worrying about what you can't know about. And so for the first thought that I see that he helps us with here in this matter of foolish resolutions is that thought. You don't know. And the second phrase is your life is a vapor. Your life is your vapor. What is your life? It is even a vapor. Kansas said something similar. Not the state, the band. They said, now don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away. And all your money won't another minute by dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Isn't that basically what James is saying here? Your life is a vapor. It is amazing how many of us live our lives in denial. We live as if tomorrow will never come. We waste minutes and hours and days and years. And they vanish like a vapor, never to return. The text says we have a little time, but then it says it vanishes away. Flip back over to that passage in Ecclesiastes and notice some things there, because I think he's saying basically the same thing there in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I'm not going to read it again. I want you to just kind of glance down through it as I make a couple comments there, because he's saying life is a vapor. It's here for a second, and then it's gone, and you better do something with it now while you can. Did you, did you catch what he's saying there? If you start there in verse number 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon is saying you need to think about God now while you are young because the day is coming, and it's coming sooner than you think when you will not be able to. 
I don't know if you thought about this as we read down through there, but I think this is one of the more interesting passages of the Bible because he's describing there, most people believe what he's describing there is the miseries of old age. What he's saying there is the difficult days are coming. The evil days are coming when you simply won't be able to do the things that you're able to do today. Your life is a vapor. It's soon going to be over. He, he, most sources I looked at said that he's, he's referring to several things there like the loss of strength and vigor that comes in old age. The loss of joy and optimism. Loss of eyesight and hearing. And I leave it to you in your own personal study to figure out where these things are in there because they, they're in there. He's talking about sleeplessness and fearfulness. He's talking about gray hair in there. Some of us understand that better than others. That little phrase, the almond tree blossoms. You know almond trees bloom white in winter. And so it's referring to gray hair. Uh, he's talking about the loss of teeth. The grinders are few. And when we get old, we lose teeth sometimes. But all of these things are descriptive of the miseries of old age, the difficulties of the evil days. And he's saying the same thing James was saying there. You simply don't know. You need to do something now because your life is a vapor. The psalmist said the same thing. My days are consumed like smoke. My bones are burned like a hearth. Peter said, all flesh is as grass. All the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away. And I can imagine most of you are sitting here right now and you're saying, okay, this is just great. Why bother with resolutions at all then if there is just nothing to point to? Why bother if we are completely helpless to control our tomorrows? Well, I don't think that's what James is saying. I don't think he's saying that we're helpless to control them. And I don't think he's saying that such planning and thoughts are useless. I think he's saying there's a foolish way to do it and a wise way to do it. And I think what he's saying is the foolish way leaves God out of the picture. Notice what he says about the wise way. He goes on in verse number, we're back in James now, in verse number 15. Notice what he says. He says, instead... Instead of this other thing, instead of these foolish ways we've described, he says, instead of that, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. I I think his point here is so clear that I don't think I really need to say much about it, but there are two phrases here that might help clarify a little bit. How do we make wise New Year's resolutions? Well, I think we need to remember these two things. Number one, if the Lord wills, we shall live. And if the Lord wills, we shall do. Did you see those two thoughts in there? If the Lord wills, we shall live. We don't know about tomorrow, whether we will live or die, but God does. It's not within our control, but it's entirely within his. When Daniel was explaining, remember I told you about uh, Belteshazzar and the, and the fingers writing on the wall? Daniel was uh, then called in and was interpreting that for him and explaining to him that his days were up and explaining the judgment of God that was upon his life. He said something to Belteshazzar that we would do well to remember. Daniel chapter 5, verse 23. He said, God holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways. Boy, that's a thought we ought to remember. God holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways. The psalmist said, Psalm 31, verse 15, my times are in your hand. If the Lord wills, we shall live. We can control that not at all. It's in his hands. He holds our breath in his hands. And so rather than making foolish resolutions that rely on this fictional control we think we have over our life, let us recognize the fact, first of all, his control, which is real and complete. Recognize our lives are his. That's the first part of a wise resolution. And then he says, if the Lord wills, we shall do. If the Lord lives, we shall live. If the Lord wills, we shall live. If the Lord wills, we shall 
do. I think before even considering the idea of making a New Year's resolution, we ought to say not, here's what I'd like to do in the new year, but Lord, what do you want me to do in the new year? If the Lord wills, here's what I will do. Only in that context can we make a wise resolution. You remember the story of Saul of Tarsus as he was trotting along the road to Damascus? We talk about that a lot. We talked about it in our study of Acts, but it's it's a good story. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus is just one of the pivotal moments in the Bible. There's many things could be said about it, but the, the point that's relevant here this morning is as he is walking along or riding along, whatever he was doing, he came face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he found himself face down on the ground. And in Acts chapter 9 and verse number 6, it says that he looked up. And I can just imagine him looking up into that blinding countenance of Christ. And it says, trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? That's a wise resolution. If the Lord wills, we will do. Do you remember that top ten list of resolutions that I read in the very beginning? All of them lose weight and quit smoking and all those kinds. Remember all those? I, I read those just last evening to Beth. We were sitting in the living room and I was reviewing this stuff. And, and I said, well, let, let me share this with you. And I read that to her. And she listened and she said, hmm. not one mention of God in the entire list. And it was like it was like I got smacked in the face. I mean, I'd been looking at this and I hadn't even noticed that. It had not struck me at all. And yet I realized that's the whole point. That's the key to the whole thing. That's the whole thing James is saying right here. She had it all right with one, one thought right there. If we could summarize and paraphrase everything James is saying, we would see him saying that foolish resolutions leave God out, wise resolutions include him right from the start. Start with him. And so I encourage us all to take that into consideration this new year. Let's ensure that whatever resolutions we make don't leave God out. As a matter of fact, let's put him first. First. Now let me close this morning, and I'm probably going to probably a little bit too long this morning, but just for a second, let me close. I, I, indulge me a minute as I diverge now from our text. I want to give you some practical thoughts about what I think are some wise resolutions we ought to make for this new year. And I think all of these would fit into what we have just described. There's only three that I'm going to mention here. But I'm going to suggest three resolutions. And when I say these, let me say, first of all, these are resolutions I'm making. And I would hope that we would all make them. I think, number one, we need to resolve in 2013 to pray more. To pray more. Uh, most of you know, because I've quoted from it several times, but uh, I've been, I, I just finished a book written by Charles Spurgeon called The Soul Winner. Some wonderful, wonderful excerpts from that book. Uh, one I want to share with you right now. He was talking to a group of preachers and a group of church workers and a group of Sunday school teachers, and he said this. He said, the gospel alone will not be blessed. We must pray over our preaching. A great painter was asked what he mixed his colors with, and he replied that he mixed them with brains. Spurgeon said, "'Twas well for a painter, but if anyone should ask a preacher what he mixes truth with, he ought to be able to answer with prayer, much prayer. When a poor man was breaking granite by the roadside, he was down on his knees while he gave his blows, and a minister passing by said, "'Ah, my friend, here you are at your hard work, and your work is just like mine. You have to break stones.' And so do I. And yes, said the man, if you manage to break stony hearts, you will have to do it just as I do, down on your knees. The man was right. No one can use the gospel hammer well except he is much on his knees. 
But the gospel hammer soon splits flinty hearts when a man knows how to pray. Prevail with God, and you will prevail with men. Straight from the closet to the pulpit let us come. With the anointing oil of God's Spirit fresh upon us, what we receive in secrecy we are cheerfully to dispense in public. Let us never venture to speak for God to men until we have spoken for men to God. Yes, dear hearers, if you want a blessing on your Sunday school teaching or any other form of Christian labor, mix it up with fervent intercession. He aimed that mostly at preachers, but he wasn't just talking to preachers. All of us need to pray more. I need to pray more in 2013. Do you? Can you make that same resolution? I I have observed, couldn't help but observe, that there are some members of our church that attended prayer meeting exactly zero times in 2012. Just think about this. Think what the opportunity is here. You could attend one time in 2013. And 100% improvement. It would be great. That would be a, at least a start. We ought to pray more in 2013. And this month of January, we mentioned, has been set aside 31 days of prayer for our project. Uh, there's another opportunity for you to resolve to pray more. Pray for God's will in that. Pray for success. Let's pray. We need to pray more. The second that I would suggest is we need to read more. Read more. Mark Twain said, the man who refuses to read good books has no advantage over the man who can't read books. It's true. We need more of the Bible in 2013. We need more of good Christian books in 2013. We need to read more. Now, I know some have told me that they just don't like to read. I, I, I hear that. I know that. And I, always when I hear that, two thoughts come to my mind. And the first thought is always this. God gave the word in the form of a book. I wonder, did he know what he was doing or not? Just because something is hard for us doesn't mean he doesn't want us to work at it. And so I still say, I believe people are missing a tremendous blessing. I believe people will only go so far if they're not willing to read. And so we need to read. But for those who do truly struggle with that, I would also suggest this is 21st century America. There is not a word of this book that's not available on audio. There's not a word of this book you can't listen to on CDs or MP3s, free everywhere, all over the Internet. There's just no excuses anymore. Uh, We've run out of them. And so we need to read more. We need to read more. We have Sunday school classes for all ages here. Some of you might want to try some this year. Because in every one of them, you'll hear the Bible. You'll get more of the Bible. We have Bible studies for men, Bible studies for women, Bible studies for time and time for the teens and young people. You'll be exposed to the Word of God. We need more of it. Will you join me in resolving in 2013 to read more? And finally, this is the last one. Will you join me in resolving to love more? To love more. If you, go, if you do go downstairs this morning, and I hope you will, I hope you'll go down and take a look at the drawings that are down there. The phase two proposed, phase two expansion for uh, the building here. I hope you look at it, and then I hope next week you'll come to our, our business meeting and you'll hear us describing all the reasons why we think. We need to go that way. And one of the things you'll hear us talking about is, uh, is the fact that we believe that in order for us to fulfill the mission of the church, we need to expand. This 610 plan that we've got land back there, one of the things that you'll see in there is it describes what we believe the mission of the church is. The mission of the church based on the Great Commission, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
You shall receive power if the Holy Ghost has come upon you and be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. That's a great commission. We believe that our mission as a church is to go, to make disciples, to do it everywhere, to do it until Jesus comes. And we believe that that expansion is necessary in order for us to fulfill that, uh, especially that here in Randolph. But, you know, there's more than the Great Commission. There's also this thing in the Bible that we refer to as the Great Commandment. The Great Commandment. Matthew chapter 22, a lawyer stood up and asked Jesus a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the Great Commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I read that and I realize I need to love more. I need to love God more in 2013. I need to love you more. I need to love the lost world more in 2013. As I was thinking through this list, I thought, you know what? I ought to add something on there about let's resolve that we would worship more in 2013. But then I thought, wait a minute. If I love God more, I'll worship more. Let's love more. I thought about saying we ought to serve more in 2013, but the same thing, right? If I care more about you, if I love you more, I'm going to serve more. If I love God more, I'm going to serve God more. I thought about saying we ought to give more, but I realized if I love more, I'll give more. I thought about saying we ought to witness more, but again, if I love more, I will witness more. So will you join me in resolving in 2013 that we're going to love more? James said, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. I believe James was simply saying to us here, there's a foolish way to go about something like a New Year's resolution, and there's a wise way. The foolish way leaves God out of the equation. The wise way brings him in right from the beginning. Right up front, first place. Some time ago, somebody published a gospel track. I don't remember if it was one of those chick tracks, those little comic book tracks or not. I think it might have been. It was, it was some kind of a comic book type of a track, and it was called His One Mistake. And it described in comic book fashion the life of a particular man. As I recall, it started off showing him, uh, you know, all suited up and ready to go to work and holding his briefcase and heading off down to, down to the office. And, and, and it, it went through all these different little vignettes of his life. You know, it showed how he exercised. It showed how he controlled his diet. It showed how he was a good family man, how he played with his kids, how he was wonderful to his wife. Uh, all that kind of stuff. He had it all down, all the way down. He had it all figured out that he was going to live to be 100 years old. And then you get to the very last page, and then it says, the funeral is on Thursday. And you flip it over, and it says he had everything right, except he forgot one thing. He had one mistake. He forgot God. He lived as if the world was all. And now he is with those, the tract says, who say the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Foolish resolutions forget God. Wise ones put him first. And so let us, brothers and sisters, resolve. Let's go ahead and make some resolutions, but let's not make foolish ones. Let's make wise resolutions. Let's resolve to put God first in 2013.